Well, this weekend, I want to bring you a message called It's Not Fair, okay? If you have kids of any age or uh, at any point, uh, you, would have under- you would have heard this said and lamented many, many times. My kids themselves oftentimes have said this to us, it's not fair. And we are all guilty of saying these things as well when we are younger. But as we grow older, we may not verbalize these complaints as much, but the sense of life's unfairness often runs at the back of our minds still. We put in the effort, but the results are not commensurate to what, we've, uh, what the effort that we've put in. We made sacrifices in the present, but the yields from these sacrifices just don't seem to be materializing. We adopt an attitude of, you know, and posture of meekness and uh, surrender, and yet internally we continue to struggle with the sense that we are getting the shorter end of the deal. And this is just some description of how we might feel about how life can be unfair. In fact, I want to share this, that I've seen worse than these things, such as when loving, caring parents just somehow going about their lives trying to follow our Lord Jesus suddenly lose their children. Case in point, almost exactly a year ago, our pastors in Detroit, Michigan, in the States, Pastor Cameron and Dilia, lost their eldest son, Caleb. And he was just 13 years old, a boy in his tender years with his whole future awaiting him. Caleb was brilliant, athletic. He was serving in church, leading worship, carrying towards his younger siblings. He went to bed one night and he just never woke up again. How is this fair? How is it that God would allow something like that to happen, especially to good people that are simply trying their best to serve Him? You know, I would like to show us a scenario of unfairness that is portrayed for us in the Bible this weekend. Now, let it be known first that I don't intend to give us some explanation to answer the question as to why things, are, things turn out the way they do. Why are things unfair? Because I want to tell you this, I can't explain it. In fact, I don't think the Bible seeks to explain it either. You know, unfairness just seems to be part of the equation of life on this side of eternity. Nonetheless, I want to preamble this morning's message by firstly saying that I'm talking about unfairness. I'm not talking about injustice and there is a difference. You see, injustice is a moral deficiency that comes as a result when there is wickedness or when there is unrighteousness. Example, when there is a subversion of justice, when, neglect, when there is a neglect of the poor and the needy and exploitation of those who are weak, who are unable to defend themselves, when there is an abuse of authority, these are injustices that results from sin, systemic sin and failure in societies. Perhaps even in some countries we see uh, failures in their judicial system that results in injustices. But let me assure you this, when it comes to injustice, God will deal with it. Because it is in our nature, our God is just. He will not overlook injustice. He will judge every injustice that happens and there will be a punishment upon those who execute injustice. But unfairness isn't injustice. Amen? There is a capriciousness in life that is just simply unpredictable. And I know that there are principles of sowing, there's principles of reaping, and there are causal relationships between what we do and the results that we get. But there are all too many instances in our own lives that we've experienced whereby these principles just don't seem to apply. And it's as though the dice of life is just thrown and we get whatever is the number that falls to us. 
Let me point out this, that if you don't believe this, there are some fundamental things in our Bible that is premised on this alone. Uh, our salvation is premised not on a causal relationship of merit and works. Amen? Instead, our salvation is premised on the great mystery of grace. By grace, we have been saved through faith. God declares this, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now, if you think otherwise, if you think that somehow there is a causal relationship, then I want to say that you are deeply mistaken. Think about yourself. Do you actually sit there and think that, hey, maybe there's something in me that deserves to, become, to come to the knowledge of salvation. Maybe there's something in me that draws God such that God would show me salvation. And then that's something inherently better in me such that Christ would reveal Himself to me and not to someone else. And... I tell you this, if that's what you think, that you are deserving of salvation or adoption into God's family, then you are wrong. Because let me clarify this, we are no better than the worst of sinners on the earth. And that is how Paul described himself towards the end of his life. He says, I'm the worst of all sinners. That's how he described himself and that's reality. For us to think otherwise, to think that there's something in us that makes us deserving of salvation is to remove the foundation of our faith and our salvation and our Christian faith. Amen. 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 We are totally underserving and it is by grace alone. You see, we, the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of meritocracy. It is a kingdom of grace. I want to read us a, a couple of passages from Romans chapter 9. And um, it's a big chunk of scriptures and I think that this is one of the hardest uh, scriptures to explain in the, in the New Testament. And let me read this to you in verse 13. It says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not to him who wills, not to, the, to him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the porter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honour and, and another for dishonour? Now again, I want to say this. This is a huge passage of Scripture. And if you didn't know this, this is one of the most confounding Scriptures that has caused great doctrinal divide within the church concerning the sovereignty of God and election and so on and so forth. Now, I don't intend to explain this verse for us because we'll still be here three days later and there'll be no end to this, okay? But I do want to point out two things for us. The first is this. If there is something in all of us, and then, you know, all of us have this desire innately in us that we want to stake some kind of a claim to think that we earn something, that we did something by our own effort, that we carve a career out for ourselves, you know, that what we have today is because we did something about it. And something in all of us that wants to take credit, even if a little bit that we know better than others, you know, we are somehow more able, we are more acceptable, we are more desirable. But let me say this, Paul dispels all this for us in this passage of Scripture because he says it is not to the one who wills, nor to the one who runs, 
but of God who shows mercy. It is totally, totally undeserved. It is not even one ounce or one iota that is earned or can be credited for us. This is the marvel and the uniqueness of the Christian faith. The second thing you've got to see is Paul describes the porter having power over the clay to make it whatever he desires. You see, oftentimes when we cry foul and we say it is unfair, the premise of our call against unfairness is that we believe somehow that we've got some kind of rights. It is our right. Therefore, we can say it is not fair. And this is one of the biggest deals today, right? I mean, through this pandemic, we see people who, are, who just don't want to put on their ma mask and they say, oh, I'm a sovereign, I can do whatever I want to do. I have a right to decide for myself what I want to be. But Paul tells us that in reality, we have no rights. We are just a lump of clay in the hands of a porter. And the porter has every right to decide what he makes of us. You see, the parallel is found in Matthew chapter 20 in the parable of the 11th hour workers. The first hour worker were upset with the 11th hour worker because the 11th hour worker got the same pay in working one hour as those who work a full day of 12 hours. And the first hour worker cried, it's not fair. But the truth is that they had no right, they had no right, they had no right to decide how much the employer wanted to pay the 11th hour workers. After all, the, you know, the, the employer paid the first hour worker exactly what they had agreed on. It was one denarii for a day's work. And if the you know, employer wanted to give more to those who came later, it was his right to give to them and there was nothing unfair about that. And yet somehow we all feel it is unfair because at the root of it, we cling to some kind of illusion to think that we have some rights against God. We have some rights to demand from God when in essence we do not. Now, here's something that we got to come to terms with, okay? you got to settle this. you got to accept this. The world is not fair. And we have no right whatsoever to demand fairness from the creator of this world and says, God, you got to be fairer to me. No, I said this last night in the service. Pastor Young is 62, going to 63 years old, and he's got a full hair of head. I mean, a full head of hair, okay? <laughs> full hair of head, that's funny. Have you noticed that he's not losing hair? I'm 47, my hair is mostly gone. It's not fair. Some of us, we grow up in environments where there's a silver spoon born in our, you know, in, in our mouths when we're born. Others of us, we have to struggle through things. It's not fair. Some of us are short, some of us are thin, some of us, we eat a lot and we never grow fat. And some of us, we eat a little bit, we balloon. It's not fair. You've got to accept that. And I'm telling you this in fairness, but let me tell you this. We do serve a God who is merciful and just, and even though He owes us nothing, yet He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for all, not just one person, not just for those whom He thinks deserving. Jesus died for every single person, past, present, and future. This is the extent of God's mercy. He gives, he's just so much so that He gives even us who have no rights a right to choose, to decide. And someday He will stand as the judge to judge everything that we have done, including the motives through which we do something. God is the perfect judge and He's perfectly just. Nonetheless, the truth remains. Life is often unpredictable and if you want to put it, it's downright unfair. It's not fair. There are many things for which I think about and I think it's not fair. Why can't I be smarter? Why can't I be taller? 
Why can't I be stronger? Why can't I have more hair? I don't know. This is not, and, and this, this fact of unfairness is not lost in our scriptures. And I want to show you an instance in the Bible where it's totally unfair. But again, I want to say this, the issue is not about undoing the unfairness because I've established, I've sought to establish this for you, that unfairness is life. It is the nature of life. So our, our object is not to remove unfairness from the situation, but instead the Bible always points us to the fact of how we respond in a situation of unfairness. I want to look at Cain and Abel, and I want to call this an account of unfairness. The account of Cain and Abel is absolutely fascinating because Jordan Peterson considers these uh, the most profound 12 verses in the Bible from Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 12. It is so profound that in 12 verses, you can, when you unpack it, there's so much lessons about our understanding about human nature, you know, about humankind, the nature of sacrifices, and of course, about unfairness. You have a prototype for how human beings are. But, and, and, and just consider the, the account, the narrative here. Cain and Abel, they both come before God and they both present sacrifices to the Lord. But the Bible tells us clearly that Abel's, one, Abel's sacrifice was received and Cain's sacrifice was rejected. What is more interesting is this, that the Bible seems intentionally ambivalent about why this is so. Was, sacrifice, was Abel's sacrifice superior to Cain's sacrifice? And if so, why is the narrative not clearer about exactly how is the sacrifice superior to the other? Was there something else that was flawed? Maybe it's the attitude in which Abel and Cain approached the Lord. You see, exactly why is it so? We may make a few guesses, but honestly, the Bible is totally silent such that we cannot really be absolutely sure what is the reason for one to be accepted and the other to be rejected. But the subject matter I want to look at firstly is this whole thing about sacrifice. Because sacrifice is important. Now, when we look at the Old Testament and we think about the animal sacrifices, the crop sacrifices, honestly, we look at it and we can't identify with it. We think it is arcane, it is primitive, even paganistic in its nature. Is that right? And this whole concept of sacrifice seems far-fetched. But I want to tell you, sacrifice is the closest thing that we can understand. Because it is something that every single one of us, myself included, it's something that we have all done in our lives. You see, a sacrifice is simply giving up something that is of value for the sake of something else that's considered to be of greater value or greater worth. We've, played, we've sacrificed playtime when we're young in order to give more time to study. We've given up something valuable now so that we can reap something better in the future. That's called opportunity cost. We abstain from legitimate pleasure so that we can dedicate our lives to our calling. You know, and the whole idea of sacrifice essentially leads us to concepts like discipline. Without the idea of sacrifice, there is no discipline. Why do you discipline? You may, why do you make sacrifices to disciplining yourself? There's, you know, we would never understand self, you know, delayed gratification, you know, because that, again, is a concept built on sacrifice. We will not be able to perceive and consider the future, not just for ourselves, but for the next generation if we don't understand the concept of sacrifice. Now, you know, this is, this is the thing that makes us human. This is what enables the construction of civilization. Just a simple concept of sacrifice, the whole human civilization is born. You know, this is what separates us also from the more primordial instincts of animals that can only have sight and consideration for the present and for the now and not for the future. That's what distinguishes us as humans. But here it is, Cain and Abel, they both present a sacrifice. Now, let me tell you this, it costs both of them something. 
It took something away from them. They were acting as humans and giving form to humanity through their act of sacrifice. But the strange thing is that one is accepted, one is rejected. Now, there is something obviously flawed in Cain's nature and character, you know, and this is without doubt because his rejection aroused such wrath and anger that required to be vented through the enough and the anahu. I knew I was going to fumble over this word, okay? The annihilation of his own brother, okay? I mean, it, it, he got so angry that his anger could not be satiated till he kills his own brother, right? And, you know, and we think about this, we look at this nature in Cain, and we think, man, he's a horrible person, but can I suggest this to you? This capacity for violence and atrocity is in every single one of us. Place yourself in a time of Cain and Abel where murder was not yet, uh, did not require or did not demand an apprehension before the institution and the giving of laws. There was no trial in court that would be required. There is no sentencing. There is no capital punishment that awaited an act of murder. Perhaps if we were placed in that situation ourselves, many more of us will act upon our murderous imaginations. Amen? And some of you might think, me? I have no murderous intentions. I have no murderous imaginations. Yeah, wait till you go out, you drive, somebody cuts your lane, and then you say, I wish that guy would get into an accident. Wait till somebody steps on your toes, and then you wish them the worst. You see, Jesus told us that murder in its most basic form is unbridled anger directed at another human being. And we are all guilty of that. Sure, the situation is unfair. Why was Abel's sacrifice accepted? Cain's was not. And the truth is that every time favor and kindness is shown to one person, someone else is going to be overlooked. If someone is promoted in the office, you, you can bet that somebody else was passed for that promotion. Is that right? When a proposal is accepted, it means that some other person's propo proposal is rejected. This is life. This is the nature of life. No one bothers to check the backstory, how much effort this person put in, how much obstacles were surmounted by this person to do, to do what he did. All we care about is the results. Whose is accepted? Whose is rejected? And the biblical narrative almost mimics it and shows us exactly how it is because the Bible doesn't tell us the effort that was put into Cain, by Cain or by Abel. All the Bible tells us is the results. Abel was accepted. Cain was rejected. And this, the unfairness of this situation, if I could say this, the Bible was intentional to communicate it to us, describe it, because the Bible just wants to paint a picture of how life is. And this is the nature of life, the capriciousness of the situation. And it has befallen every one of us. There is not one person sitting here, there's not one person watching at home who have not experienced before being accepted and equally being rejected. All of us know what it feels like on both sides. There are times where we've been accepted and there are many times in which we have been rejected as well. But what is staggering in this account is Cain's response. How did Cain respond to this unfairness? It is the point of what this account is all about. It is the point, the purpose to which the Bible narrative directs us. Present unfairness is the rule of life. Accept it. Unfairness is here to stay and you will experience it live is unfair. You can cry out at the top of your voice, it is not fair, and you will be declaring the truth, okay? But the unfairness we face today does not determine our future. 
That's the truth that God wants to communicate to us. Yes, unfairness is there, but your destiny, your future is not inhibited by the unfairness that you face today. Instead, it is inhibited by the decision that you make next. What is of greatest importance is what do you do when you face an unfair situation? Do you choose to give in to your anger, your resentment? Do you allow the hurt to roil all over you in your soul and eat you up? And the result, if you allow that to happen, is that it's going to give birth to a curse in your life. And that's exactly the two things that I want to point out to us. Number one, do you give in to your emotions? And number two, the curse and the nature of the curse that comes upon us. You see, the first thing is our response, right? And I want to examine this very quickly by looking at Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 from the NASB, the New American Standard uh, uh, Bible version. And it says this, If you do well, will your face not be cheerful? And if you do not, sin is lurking at your door, it's desires for you, but you must master it. Most of us use the King James Bible or the New King James. And it says, If you do, you will not... Will you not be accepted? But the NASB is a wonderful translation. It is considered one of the most accurate word-for-word translation Bibles that we have out there. And it says this, If you do well, will your face not be cheerful? And I like that translation because here is a very, 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 very powerful principle. And this is something I wish all Christians to master and to realize. I plead with you, my brothers and my sisters, hear this, practice this, do this. You see, you, um, this, is the, this is the truth of this, uh, of this uh, uh, particular statement. If you do right, you will feel right. Do what is right, and you will feel right. You see, it is so obvious, yet it is not practice. And the problem is this. All of us, we rather feel right first before we do right. I tell my boys, come on, let's go and run and exercise. They tell me, no, I don't feel like it. When I feel like it, I go run. You know what? You never run. Oh, when I feel good, I'll go to church. Today, I don't feel so good. Go to church first, then you'll feel good. Hey, when I feel better, I'll repair my relationships. When this, you know, tension is died, I will go and do something about my relationship that has been soured. You see, the key that is given us here is simply this. Go exercise and you'll feel better. Go repair and heal your relationships and joy shall be restored. Do what is right and you'll feel better. Don't let your emotions lead you. You start leading your emotions and directing it and having mastery over it. And that's the thing that Cain failed to understand. You see, every unfair situation you face, I guarantee you this, it will evoke negative feelings within you. Offense, bitterness, anger, hurt, disappointment, betrayal, whatever it is. But don't let these emotions control you because sin lurks over unfair situations, seeking to make that, to take, use that experience to gain a foothold in your emotions and come into your life. But the Bible narrative says this, God said this himself out of his divine tongue. He says, you must master it. You must master it. The next thing is to consider the result of Cain not mastering his emotions. And it is a curse. And here's something hauntingly poignant about what Cain did to Abel. In the Septuagint, or the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek word that's used to describe you know, uh, the, this murder you know, whereby Cain kills Abel. And that word used is a very, very interesting word because it is a particular word that is used to describe the killing of an animal for the purpose of a sacrifice. Can I make this vivid for us? What Cain literally did through the description of this Greek word that is used is that he went and he slit the throat of his brother, 
caused the blood to come out and then looked at God and says, God, God, you want a sacrifice? You're not happy with my sacrifice? I tell you what, I'll give you a blood sacrifice with my own brother's blood. That's literally what Cain did. And that's the descriptiveness of that word that is used. And God comes in and God judges with a curse over Cain. In Genesis 4, chapter, 11, uh, chapter 4, verse 11 to 12, the Lord said, When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. Now, this curse may make no sense to us. It may not, you may not understand the impact of it. But you've got to understand and read this curse in the context of who Cain is. Cain is a tiller of the ground. Cain was a farmer. If I were to contextualize this curse to a man who is a preacher who refuses to respond rightly to God, then the curse would read like this. While you have been a preacher of the word, your tongue shall be shut, your mouth shall be shut, no longer shall you have words to speak, revelation shall not come to you. That's what this happens. He's saying this, the, 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 the ground shall no longer yield its strength to you. To a farmer, that's the worst curse that you can receive. If you're a writer, then it shall be, the, the curse will read like this. No longer will you have the ability, your creativity will dry up and your hands shall not be able to produce a word. Literally, when we don't deal with unfair situations properly, there is something about the very source of our lives, the giftings, the calling that gets shut. Worse still, the pronouncement over Cain was this, that you'll become a fugitive and a wanderer. You see, if you were able, this curse means nothing. Because if you're looking after animals, you have to take the animals from place to place to place to place. If you are a farmer, you can never take your land from place to place. You are bound to the land. And yet the curse is this, no longer can you be, you're fugitive moving. How do you become a farmer when you don't even have land of permanence? Amen? Here is the scary thing. How we respond to today's unfairness may well uh, evorate the very area of gifting and productivity in us. Let me rephrase this. How we respond to today's unfairness may well emasculate the very area of productivity and gifting. We become unbarren. We become non-food producing. Our lives dry up and we cannot do the things that God has called us to do because we don't respond rightly when unfair situations happen in our lives. You see, I want to bring this to a close by talking a little bit about Job because if there's someone that was unfairly treated, it is Job. If there is an example of unfairness, it has got to be Job. He was devout, he loved God, he was not a sinner, he did all the right things, he covered all the bases, he prayed for his children, sacrificed for them, he crossed every checkpoint, he prayed, he obeyed, he lived righteously. In fact, he, did, he lived so well, the Bible describes him as blameless, without fault. And yet the most devastating, devastating disaster strikes this man. Notice this, if you read Job from first chapter to the last chapter, not once is it told to us that at the end of the trial, God comes to Job and explains to him, hey, my son Job, this is actually what happened. I had a discussion with Satan and I had a bet with Satan that you were whole well. No, God actually never explained to Job why the disaster happened to him. And you tell, I tell you this, God is not obliged to offer us an explanation as to why unfair situations happen in our life which is the same reason why I don't seek to explain to you why things aren't fair. All I would suggest to you is, hey, you have every right to say it is not fair. But it is what you do to it. Because the whole book of Job is, all, is, not, is, is nothing about explaining why it happened. It was all about 
describing to us how Job responded. The summation of Job's response is found in Job chapter 1, verse 21, which is the same response he carried right throughout this whole ordeal. And Job said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His response to unfairness is simply this, I thank you God and I bless you and I praise your name. Now think about the magnitude of the adversity that crashed on Job's life. He lost all his income-producing assets through natural disasters. There were, he, was, he, he had a conglomerate of companies that was very, very uh, uh, lucrative and a hostile takeover happened and he lost all his companies to corporate raiders. His best workers were recruited by other companies. His children went on holiday and they all went on the same plane and the plane crashed and all his children died in one moment. He lost his health overnight and he was made homeless. Okay, this is not exactly what happened. I was, I'm actually modernizing the biblical account, okay? But can I say this? The loss is by no means understated. How is it humanly possible for someone at the end of that to say, God, with tears running down his face, I bless you, O oh God, I give you thanks. And I think that in the life of Job, we're given an antidote to confront the unfairness of the circumstances that comes to all of us. It is not an instantaneous antidote. It is an antidote that if we begin to do it and practice it, it sets us towards a path of healing, freedom, and more than that, success subsequently. And this is what he does. This antidote is an antidote of gratitude, of thanking God no matter what situation confronts you. You see, when Job's wife gloated him to curse God, Job's response in Job chapter 2, verse 10 is simply this. He said, shall we accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? This is gratitude. This is an ungrudging attitude of thankfulness. Shall we accept good things and then when adversity and fair situation come, we blame God? I want to end with two quotes by a man called Roy Higgins. And he says these two things. He says, happiness does not lead to gratitude. Gratitude leads to happiness. Don't get this wrong. If, you, if there is a lack of joy in your life, practice gratitude. Learn to give thanks. Take time, discipline yourself on a daily basis to thank God for all that's happening around you. The second thing is this, the second quote he said is this, joy is a function of gratitude, gratitude is a function of perspective. Again, joy comes when we are thankful. But how do you be thankful? You be thankful by changing your perspective. Many of us maybe are complaining, hey, HBL again, uh, all my kids at home, how to survive. But did you know that if you can act, act execute HBL, it means that you've got a laptop at home. It means that your kids can go to school. It means that you have a home and shelter where your children are safe to remain at home. Did you know that in many places, children cannot go to school? Do you know that in many places, children are exploited? They don't have internet connection. If you change your perspective, I tell you, you can look at HBL and say, thank you, Jesus, for HBL. And that will create joy. That will change the atmosphere at home. This is what God is saying to us. Yeah, it's unfair. Another tightening of measures. Ah, 81% vaccinated. Why? Still like that. Just shut up, okay? Everybody just shut up. <laughs> I, I, I mean, shalom, shalom, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. You see, that's what makes a difference. Can you imagine if all the Christians in our country just lift up our hands and say, thank you, Jesus. Amen. 
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. I know if you're a gym operator, it is so unfair. You guys are the first to get closed down. If you're an F&B person, ah, again, kena. I, I know it's not fair. Yeah? And, but we cannot write the unfairness of the situation. But we can write our response. It says, Lord, I thank you. I thank you. No matter what, you know, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's all stand to our feet, shall we? And let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness. Father, we, there's so much good you have done to us. There's so much good you have poured on us, Lord. May we not let unfair situations blind us from all the abundance and the good and the prosperity that has fallen upon us, Lord. Go to waste, oh Lord. And then for us to ignore everything that you have done for us, the salvation that you have given us, Jesus suffering the most cruel death so that we have a hope and a future for eternity, oh God. Father, open our eyes, we ask you. Humble ourselves as we, if we have not responded rightly in the past. Lord, we ask you to forgive us, oh God. And we ask you to help change us, reconstruct us, realign us, give us fresh perspective of how to look at things, help us to put in place things in our lives so that we would respond rightly to the situations that confront us, especially when they're unfair, Lord. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you're for us and not against us and you love us with an everlasting love, Lord. And therefore, we commit ourselves, we present ourselves to you, Lord. May you cause the joy of the Lord, the thankfulness, gratitude to overflow in our hearts always, Lord. We bless you, Lord. And now, Lord, I just speak your blessings over your congregation, those who are present here, those who are tuning in from Miri and different parts of Malaysia, as well as our audiences, Lord, who are watching online, digitally. Lord, may the blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.